Our reading this morning is taken from Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. Before we we read that word, uh, a moment of prayer. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, kindly make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Judges chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, that's to Gideon, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? They accused him fiercely and said to him, He said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abitza? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zamalmuna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmuna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men all who were left of all the army of the peoples of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. Gideon went up by way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, And he took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, and that killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, 
They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We'll willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an effort of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, you know, it's a good thing to make a good start at life, but it's another thing to finish well. What does finishing look like? Well, it means different things to different people. For some people, it looks like a long, cushy retirement. To others, it looks like uh, it it does, in in the expression, those who dies with the most toys wins. But the wise person will seek to finish well in terms of integrity and character. Gideon is a man who never sought greatness. When the angel of the Lord came looking for him, he didn't even believe initially that it was the angel of the Lord. At least he had to check, first of all, in order to make sure that this was a good angel talking to him and not an evil spirit that was trying to deceive him. As soon as that was confirmed, he immediately took action to pull down the worship paraphernalia in his father's house, leading his father to confess that his household gods that he'd worshipped were no gods, and that Israel's God alone was God. We saw him fooled with the Holy Spirit, demonstrating that Israel's God had power over nature when he put out that, that test of the fleece and the dew in the morning. Uh, twice he demonstrated this, that Israel's God is greater than Baal, the, the false god of the locals. He's just finished this great decisive victory over overwhelming hordes of wickedness, himself and his 300, without any weapons, without killing a single person themselves, in the strength of the Lord. No wonder in Hebrews chapter 11, Gideon 
is noted for his faith. This is what it says. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice. Now, it's one thing to win the war. It's one thing to win a war against external, physical, identifiable enemies. But the church today faces different kinds of enemies. We don't look at people in terms of people that we hate or people who are after us. Rather, we see behind the people the powers of darkness, our enemies who masquerade as good things in order to attack us. Now, at the end of his life, though, Gideon is facing other kinds of tests. First of all, in this passage, he begins by facing the test of criticism. The men of Ephraim said to him, what is this you've done? What is this you've done? Very often, criticism begins not with the people who are outside, not friends of ours. Very often, criticism begins from our home team, as it were. Ephraim was part of Israel, just as uh, Gideon's own tribe was. It was part of the family of God. It was one of the largest weaponized tribes, along with Judah, one of the most weaponized and largest of the tribes of Israel. And yet, for some reason, they had chosen not to go and help Gideon right at the very beginning when he sent a message to all of the tribes, all of the tribes of Israel, will you come and help me fight against the Midianites? The largest, the most influential, and the most militarily prepared refused to come to his aid. And now here they are, and they're criticizing Gideon for not inviting them in the beginning, which he had invited them at the beginning. But now he sent them a second invitation. Now that the battle is actually fought, now that the Midianites are virtually defeated, he then sends a messenger to the Ephraimites and says, why don't you come down against the Midianites and uh, capture them and their princes? So they did. They came, they captured the princes, and in the process accumulated an enormous amount of spoil, the spoils of war. And it's these Ephraimites, late to the table, but quick to snatch the spoils of war, who are now entertaining this uh, campaign of criticism against Gideon. And what does Gideon do? Well, he doesn't argue with them. He could have argued with them. He could have said to them, well, why did you not respond when I sent out the general call to all the tribes of Israel to come to the aid of the little mini tribes like ours? You did nothing. Nothing. Neat. Yada. Nothing at all. Secondly, he could have argued, you've probably thought that a little buddy like me, the lowest, from the lowest, the smallest tribe, and from the lowest within the category of my own family, you didn't think that somebody like me could have attained the victory against the Midianites, did you? He could have argued like that. He could have said to them, you missed one important factor, God. But he doesn't make any of those arguments. He doesn't argue with them at all. In fact, he is a model of conflict resolution. His response is non-confrontational. It is diplomatic. He compliments them. 
He compliments them on the capture and execution of these two nomadic leaders. He admits that actually MD looking on would think their work was far more impressive than his. After all, he personally and his 300 men had never lifted a sword to kill anyone up to this point. And so, on paper, it looked as if Ephraim were doing very well, whereas Gideon wasn't. But he reminds the Ephraimites uh, that their success was, in fact, not due to their hands, but rather to the work of God through them. He tells them, it was God who has given into your hands the princes of Midian. So here's the, ten, the test of complaint. Uh, Gideon passes the test by being gracious and by being diplomatic in the way in which he responds. The second test is a test of ingratitude. You might feel that Gideon uh, just can't seem to catch a break. First of all, these people would be mad at him because he didn't, didn't invite them personally earlier, so they said, though it wasn't true. And now here are other people who are determined not to help him. We're told that the army, his little band of 300, who had set out, and you can imagine what it was like to face that enormous army of 130, 140,000 men, just 300 of them without any weapons, no ark, no swords, no uh, arrows. Uh, you can imagine the ten, the, how t- intense that was. And yet those men were now chasing the army of Midian and with a goal to bringing the battle home to the Midianites and to neutralize their leaders. His men were now hungry. They were exhausted. And so he turns to his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews. Now these people that he turns to, these uh, villages, uh, Succoth and Penuel, these were on the other side of the Jordan. That is, on the side of the Jordan from which the Midianites would attack. So you can make excuses for these people. They, they perhaps felt insecure. Perhaps they felt as if if they side with, with Gideon, then they're going to invite more attacks upon themselves. But their response to Gideon, do you notice, is contempt and sarcasm in their tone, the kind of language that you save for your enemy, not for your family, your flesh and blood, your fellow believer, as it were. Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian, are they already in your hand that we should give you bread? Ignoring the fact that the battle had already been won. The resistance of Succoth and Penuel was more passive than active. Maybe they were afraid of reprisals. Maybe their preoccupation was security. We know this, the preoccupation of the Ephraimites was with status. They wanted to be first to defeat Midian. And that had been stolen from them by their own folly, by the way, but it had been stolen from them. But they were preoccupied with status. These two seem to have been preoccupied with security, hence the tower that is referred to at the end of verse 9, the tower in which they put their confidence. 
Surely they could see that the hand of God was in the massive victory that God had delivered to Gideon and his 300 over overwhelming odds. But they were blinded by their petulant preoccupation. And in doing so, they were threatening the cohesion of Israel as the people of God. If we can look at what's happening here in this story and look at it from a churchly point of view, we would say that this, these groups of people with a preoccupation for status or the status quo, because they were concerned with being recognized and secure, are a threat to the peace and unity of the church of God. I think we find an example of this in the New Testament in the little book of Third John. John writes there about a man called Diotrephes. Diotrephes who likes to put himself first, who did not acknowledge the authority of the Apostle John. And the Apostle John is, a, is about as decisive concerning this man as Gideon is decisive in telling Succoth and Penuel what he will do with them when he comes back. Here's what John says. If I come, I will bring up what he, this man Diotrephes, is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Gideon, like John, was angry, not for himself, but for these steadfast few, these 300 who had gone into the battle with no weapons other than their faith in God and had been victorious. It was easy for Ephraim to complain and Succoth to be ungrateful because the battle was already won. Reformers like Richard Rogers urge us not to be discouraged by carping criticism. Gideon gives a soft answer to the Ephesians' critique, to the, to the Ephraim's critique, the Ephraimite's critique. And he doesn't look, lose his cool, but answers gently. Succoth, on the other hand, goes further. They're ungrateful for the risks the, the 300 have taken and the faith that they've shown, and they vilify them and mock them like enemies. Another reformer, John Mayer, says that the people of Succoth and Penuel were too quick to judge Gideon and his ragtag 300. They showed them contempt because it wasn't a tidy victory yet. The victory wasn't finished yet. People like this look at the work of God, they look at any work of God, and they, they point out what isn't happening or what isn't happening yet. And they point to that, and that becomes the focus of their concern or the focus of their talk and their speech, and they disturb the unity and the peace of the church. So how does Gideon react? Well, he presses on with his work. When the Lord has given Zeb, uh, Zeba and uh, Zelmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh and I will break down that tower. 
He will discipline them. Now, we can use this same language today when we talk about facing our spiritual and moral enemies in society. We fight with truth for truth. We fight for truth with truth. And we will find, as Gideon found, that the people of God sometimes, very often, can be a great disappointment to us. Maybe you found that out. Maybe you're new to the church or new to Christianity and you haven't found that out that yet. Let me be the first to warn you that the people of God can very often be a disappointment. It helps if you remind yourself of a number of truths that are eternal and unchanging. Number one, God loves the church not because it's lovable, but because he chooses to love the church. Secondly, Christ died for the church as it is, with all its faults and weaknesses and failings, in order to make it what it will one day be. Thirdly, simul justus et peccator, a Latin phrase that says this, Christian people are at one and the same time justified and sinful. You don't stop being sinful till you're perfect in glory. Justified and sinful. Each one of us has the seed of every possible sin in our hearts. In other words, every one of us has got good reason to be humble. So Gideon, you see, as uh, the reformer verbally puts it, he is to be praised that although food was denied him and his men, and although they were despised by their own people, what did they do? They pursued their divine vocation. They finished the mopping operations. They endured to the end, and those who endure to the end shall be saved. And so when they capture their enemies, they return to Israel. He deals with the people of Penuel. The wall falls down. The tower falls down. He comes to the people of Succoth, and he doesn't come to the city in a rage or in anger. He doesn't do mass uh, to send his soldiers round the houses or whatever. He doesn't do what other uh, armies would do. Rather, he uh, takes someone aside, he gets names, he deals with 77 named individuals, and he disciplines them publicly. Now, may this be a lesson to us. Be careful that your passion for status or for the status quo that your pursuit of security doesn't disturb the unity and sap the energy of the church of Jesus Christ. Well, Gideon leaves this and he goes back home. And back home he finds, with these two kings that he takes with him, back home he finds that his brothers have been killed, massacred in an act of retributive justice, Gideon gets his son to execute the two kings. The son reneges, the two kings 
basically say this, please don't send a young man against us with a sword to execute us. They'll hack and hack and hack and hack and hack, and it's going to be really sore. You know how to handle a sword. Please, will you do the job? That's what they say. So he does what he does out of justice. That was what was required. And he does what he does. The test of uh, criticism, the test of ingratitude, and now the test of popularity. Israel says to him, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Midian." What were they offering him? A dynasty. Really, it's really hard to say dynasty when you, I know, you know the word is actually dynasty, but, but there you go. Uh, they offered to establish a dynasty of Gideon and his family out of gratitude for his service. They wanted to build a hereditary regime. And you can see why they were impressed. This, this action had been decisive on Gideon's part. And now they wanted a king to unite Israel. By the way, this, this desire was going to grow and grow and grow until the days of Samuel, when it was the Philistines that were pressing in upon Israel. And they come, you remember, to Samuel with a demand, make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Arthur Kandal, in his, prophet, in his uh, commentary on this book of, of uh, Judges, says this, Gideon's reply was a model of noble unselfishness, which recognized the essential fact that Israel as a nation had a king, had a king. If only they would acknowledge him. In other words, Gideon is preaching to Israel, you have a king, follow him, honor him, worship him. Their king was Yahweh, the Lord, who is all to them and more than all the kings of the nations were to their subjects. So he reinstates this view and he presses it home to the people. In other words, he passes the test of popularity. It doesn't go to his head and he witnesses a good confession. Now, this temptation, this temptation to use our popularity to get more influence has always plagued the people of God, right throughout all of Holy Scripture. You remember the disciples who wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand and the left hand in the kingdom of God? Uh, very early on in the life of the church, in the first few hundred years, the bishops of Rome were godly men, deeply holy men. Often they were reluctant to take the job. Many were notable for a consistent faith, even to the point of martyrdom. But occasionally one or two would arise and, and they would start talking about having a universal bishop, a universal bishop. Now, who was bishop of all of the churches everywhere? And we soon see the occasional one trying to ex- exercise that kind of power and influence. Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory the Great, as he's known, 
Bishop of Rome, like Gideon, refused the task. With great humility, says the reformer Peter Martyr Vermigli. Eventually, Gregory, the Bishop of Rome, would write to the emperor, to the patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Constantinople, the other big churches. And this is what he would say about his predecessor. In the time of my predecessor, he, by pretense, claimed to himself the title of universal bishop and had his deacon, his assistant, spread it about. Let it be known that Peter, chief among the apostles, never called himself a universal apostle. He who claims to be the universal bishop takes away the office of bishop altogether. Bishop, by the way, is just senior pastor in a large church with many churches around. It leaves, he goes on to say, no office of a bishop to others. It was Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory the Great, who was the first to say that bishops, whether of Rome or of anywhere else, that claim a title of universal bishop can be described by the word antichrist. Not interesting. Only Christ is the universal head of the church. And Gregory the Great admonished church leaders to be very careful that they did not come under the judgment of God in that respect. Now we can look at that story and we can say, well, that was then. What about now? Well, evangelicalism in the 20th century has developed the universal aspect to the mega degree in the mega church model with celebrity pastors who have generated wealth, as the churches have, where pastors became untouchable. Some of them became little dictators until they fell. Human popularity is no sign of spirituality. The danger that Peter, the apostle, warned of is still present, of men wanting to, quote, lord it over the church of God. Well, the third test, Gideon passed that test of popularity. The last test is a test of retirement. Uh, I'm using the word retirement. I, I could have used the word prosperity, but I think it's more than that. It, it's, it's a new period in time he, when he has said no to rule. He knows they want to, they want to give him something. They want to recognize his, his achievements in some way and thank him. And so he says, well, we'll put out a rug here. If anybody wants to throw in anything that they took by way of, a, of spoil, you could throw it in. The earrings, particularly, he's into earrings in a big way. He said the earrings, throw them in. And apparently they threw a lot of earrings in and it came to a lot of money. And he used that money to make not an idol, not an idol, but a garment, the ephod, a garment that was usually worn by the high priest himself. The garment that was designed specifically for the unum and thummim that was used to discern divine revelation. And there was a little pocket in the garment, especially for that. I, can't, I don't have a pocket in this for, for that. Anyway, 
uh, to illustrate it. If I was wearing a robe, I could illustrate it, but I'm not, and so therefore I can't. And so he was doing that so that he would have direct wisdom from God for the work that he still had to do as a judge in Israel. That was his calling, to be the judge in Israel. He was seeking to do it for that reason. So he makes the ephod. And the next thing we learn is that the people of Israel are so taken with this ephod that he wears, the garment that he wears, that they begin to whore after it. That's the word that's used when the people go after foreign gods. This is not what Gideon made it for, but this is what it became as the people looked at this thing that was brand new, looked splendid. It looked splendid. It was obviously religious, and, and the revelations that came to Gideon by using the human thumb that, that caught on, and, and it was miraculous or supernatural or godlike, and they began to worship it. And this is a warning. Anything we do, anything we do as a church without biblical warrant is in danger, is in danger of becoming an object of worship. The whole, the whole issue of introducing new things to the worship of God begins in Rome and in other towns way back in the beginning of the church, and were usually done for good reasons, as Gideon's was, with good motivations. And through the passage of time, people forget all of the caveats. And the thing becomes an object of desire or devotion, and soon people are worshiping the thing rather than the God towards which it was meant to point. Gideon's a warning of that here. Uh, he did a good thing for a good purpose that became a bad thing. He didn't think it through. And Gideon's many wives, that's usually bad in the Bible. It's bad here, of course, as well. But very often, the many wives lead the man into idolatry. In his case, they didn't, which says a lot then for his strength of faith. But at the end of the passage, here's what we have to say about Gideon. The land, that is the people of God, have rest for 40 years. A whole generation, there's no invasion, there's no upset, nobody killed, no crops destroyed, no famine, all of that stuff that we read about at the beginning of Gideon's story, there's none of that for 40 years years. Secondly, he dies in good old age, which in the Bible is a sign of Yahweh's blessing and an achievement for someone who's been through all that Gideon went through. And the third thing we're told is that Gideon did good to Israel. And so, Gideon will be forgotten, as we were going to find out next time. He'll be forgotten when he dies. No lasting loyalty or kindness will be shown to his family. But his victory over Midian will be repeated. 
repeated in Hebrews chapter 11, in Psalm 83, where it talks about his defeating the kings of, uh, of the land, in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, when it's talking about the coming of Christ, it talks about him having the same kind of victories as the victory at Midian that Gideon had. And in Isaiah 10, verse 26. In other words, the story of Gideon goes on and on throughout the biblical revelation as an example of what God can do to a weak servant who is available to him and overcomes all the odds. He can do that for Gideon. He can do it for you. If you can do that for Gideon, if you can take a man like Gideon, weak as he was, and, and uh, unremarkable in many ways, he can do that for you. But don't think for one moment you won't face tests, whether it's criticism or ingratitude or prosperity or popularity or whatever it may be. You will. May God give us the grace to end well, to end well. For better is the end of a thing than the beginning, the wise men said. Those who started well in their youth can often destroy their whole life at the end. Let that be a warning to us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn this story from Gideon. And Lord, grant that we would be faithful in our generation as he sought to be. And that, Lord, you would deal with our weaknesses and our sins the way you were graciously enough to do with Gideon's weaknesses and sins. That you would be gentle with us. Keep us confessing. Keep us believing. Keep us trusting. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.